This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. so do stay for tea and coffee. I will be working when I'm out there. I'm preaching at two churches. I'm preaching at a church in Cape Town, which was planted by a really good friend of mine. He used to, do, used to be the executive pastor of the church that Nazi and I planted in Manchester, a guy called Wayne. Nolan will have him preach here sometime. He's a top, top guy, so I'm preaching for him and doing something for his leaders. And also, um, when we had our practice Sunday, I don't know if you remember, there's a South African guy, you probably don't remember, called Greg, came and brought us a word about God blessing us. And he backed it up with a £1,000 gift from his church, so I'm preaching at his church as well. I thought that's the least I could do, isn't it? Uh, whether I'll be worth £1,000 or not, I guess the jury is out. Okay, so it's interesting. If you've uh, not been around church, or if you've been just coming to this church for a few weeks, uh, you probably think, what is this church on? What, are they, what is matter with them? Because two, two, two weeks ago we preached about money. Uh, last week uh, we preached about and men and female roles and sexism. We've preached about suffering and science. And and I'm really sorry, this week it's like a biggie, scary one. Nazi, she's checking my PowerPoint. She goes, whoa, this is a scary one. Be careful, don't say that, do say that, do be the other. So I hope we're going to be okay. I haven't even got notes, I've just got my PowerPoint slides, so that is even more dangerous. So I'm going to just pray that I don't offend you inappropriately. So there might be things that offend you, but that's God's problem. I'm a nice guy, and you've got to love me at the end, okay? If you've got an issue with God, you can sort that one out. But I'm just going to pray. Father, we just pray as we look at, why do you care about who we sleep with? Lord, we, we, it's, a, it's a big topic, and it's something where it's easy to get it wrong, and people feel judged and finger-pointed, and... People feel, well, I'm single, it's all right for you, they're married, and people feel I'm struggling with my sexual identity and my sexuality, and that, I don't know what to do with that. And Lord, there's a whole world of stuff mixed into this. So I just pray that you'd give me real grace and wisdom as I walk through this. And I pray at the end, Jesus, we'll realize how much you love us. Lord, I thank you that you said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. And Lord, I thank you that you've given yourself to save us from all our foolishness. So I pray for grace on everybody listening and grace as I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why does God care with, why does God care who I sleep with? Um, We did have one card on this from uh, someone's friend. uh, And so that was great. We got that card. I won't mention who it was, but it was about the whole homosexuality thing. What I'm going to do is roll, make a point about who God says we can sleep with, and you can draw your influences around that. So I have done a talk before about homosexuality, and I respond to that called Beyond the Barricades, about getting beyond this kind of finger-pointing judgment and finding grace for each other. I have done that talk. It's not available online because it's really explosive. So if you want to know what, what we feel as a church about that, 
Uh, you can grab that from me. I'll let you have that audio. But we're just talking more generally about who does God care I sleep with, so it's not just about the homosexuality debate. But maybe what we're talking about is best summed up by our, our rent-a-quote man, Richard Dawkins, uh, who, as you know, is an evolutionary biologist, uh, and he always uh, is always good for a good quote. Uh, I, I don't know where he writes these or gets these things, but this is his quote. You could persuade me there was a God who created everything. Well, we're trying to do that. Obviously, the first week, that's what we tried to do. I don't know if he was persuaded. But he said, but even if you could, even if you could persuade me, there was a God who created everything. But this is incompatible with the God cares about our sins. This is the line. And what we do with our genitals and what we think about. So he said that in a discussion with John Lennox, who's a professor of maths at Oxford. And they were having this discussion. And he said, I can't believe in a God who cares about who you sleep with. What you do with genitals, what's, what has God got nothing better to do? Uh, and it, it's a really very common objection. As we're doing this big objection series, it's a really common objection to say, why are people, why is Christians so obsessed with sex? I would su- suggest to you that actually everyone's obsessed with sex. Our society is obsessed with sex. And, uh, and so, so, you know, in that sense, it's a difficult one. But, but what's the answer? Does God care who we sleep with? Well, the simple answer is, Yes, he does. Yes, he does care who we sleep with. And, and, and in one sense, you think, well, why? Why does God care who we sleep with? That's what we're going to look at. But why? What, what does God say? He does care who we sleep with. So this is, what he, this is what the Bible says. And I could have hide this from you, and I could make it differently, but basically this is what the Bible says. I'm going to use Jesus, pull him in after this, after this just so you know it's not me. But this is basically what the, the, the Bible says about sex. God made humans to have sex in one context only. That is in a marriage between one man and one woman. This is what Jesus said. Jesus only said two things about sex, and these are them. Jesus replied, this is a bit of the Sermon on the Mount, or when people came to him about divorce as well. Jesus replied, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We talked about that last week. And then he says, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united, it's an interesting word there, united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You can hear a little bit of the wedding service in there, can't you? What God has joined together, let no one separate. There's this sense of coming together, united together, becoming one flesh. There's a sort of joining together, and we talked about it last week, about how God is a, a trinity, a one plus one plus one equals one, and marriage, men and women, are one plus one equals one. There's a unity and a oneness about that uh, that flies in the face of what we think sex is all about, and we'll come to that in a moment. But actually, Jesus goes a little bit further when he's adding about what the boundaries around this, the, this relationship of man and woman in marriage, what, this is what he draws the boundary and he says, and I tell you, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he said, well, that's how far it is. So everything else, even thinking about any kind of sex outside of that framework, is, is wrong. So that means every single one of you and me, we're all busted. We're all busted. Because we've all sinned in some way, in thought, some of us in deed, 
sexually. And you, none of you want to smile because you want to, don't want to admit, yeah, that's me. But you probably all have. There might be one or two of you, but I suspect you might, you know, I don't know the mind of women, but I know the mind of men. And I think if you're saying you've never looked at a woman lustfully, you know, please pray for me. I'm not saying that's my big issue, but you know, that is, that's a human. You see, as soon as you get on sex, these guys, but that, that's the fact. Why do you think sex is all over advertising? Because you just a bloke, oh, catches your attention. And I know that increasingly, uh, that, so, uh, you know, pornography and, and, and lust is a problem for women as well. I read 82% of guys between 18 and 30 struggle with pornography. It doesn't stop at 30. And I, I've heard 33% of women struggle with that kind of stuff. So sex is everywhere and we're all busted. One of the things that, 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 that therefore the sex, the context for sex excludes, and excuse me if this is a little bit R-rated or 15 or whatever, I'm amazed what you can see in a 15 these days, you know, whatever, but uh, it, this means that, that man having sex with a woman who's not married to, that's excluded. Man having sex with another man, that's excluded. Man having sex with multiple women or multiple men, sequentially or together. My wife's looking shocked. It does happen. Or it excludes women having sex with a man she's not married to. Or women having sex with another woman. Or women having sex with multiple men or multiple women, sequentially or together. And shockingly, it includes men and women having sex with children. Men having sex with people of their own family. Men or women having sex with animals. And men or women having sex with the dead. If none of those things shock you, I'll be amazed. I don't know how far down that list I need to go before you say, uh-uh. But actually, the interesting thing is that we all care about who's, who, who has sex with who. Because all of us in society draw the line and say, that is inappropriate. I mean, I'm exhausted with watching the news with Jimmy Savile and X and Y and Z. I mean, I just fast forward it. I just think, I'm exhausted with this. You know, the, the whole kind of sexual predatory, just watching him walk around the hospital wards in where it was, Stoke Mandeville this week, seeing the report come out, and you think, ah, oh, it's awful. And we can, it's easy to say, well, he's the problem, and we're okay. But actually, the fact is, it's, it's just everywhere. I'm not saying paedophilia, but the sexual challenge to walk right is everywhere. And we've all got a view about, about what's right. And what we can easily do with this is we can easily point the finger and say, well, I don't know who to point it at. Well, let's point it over here. You <laughs> have got a real problem with your sexual stuff, but I'm okay. Isn't that what people expect church to be about? Isn't that people think, well, why would I want to come to church? Because people are just going to point the finger. Maybe I'm struggling with my sexual identity. Maybe I'm feeling attracted to somebody of the same sex. Well, why would I want to come to church? Because they'll just point at me and say, you've got a problem. Or why, if I've, if I've struggled with pornography, why would I want to tell anyone? Because they're just going to point the finger. Or if I've had a relationship with somebody who's not my wife or my husband, why would I want to tell anyone? That's the last place I want to go. Because what you expect in church is judgment. So there's a great story 
which is one of my favourite stories, where a woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Uh, just in case you know, it takes two to commit adultery. Where's the bloke? But that's another story that says something else about Jewish culture at that time. And they bring the woman to Jesus and they throw her down on the floor and says, it says in the law of Moses, this woman needs to die. Now, what do you say? And sometimes the way that church is presented is, we say, well, absolutely And that's not what Jesus says, though, is it? That's not what Jesus says. And it's shocking that he doesn't say it. Because does he not care who you sleep with? Well, he really does. But yet he says to her, he says, actually, doesn't he? He says, let who's without sin, let who's not got it right sexually, cast the first stone. And it says, starting with the oldest. Starting with the oldest, they said, they put down their stones and they went away. So almost you can hear the, imagine the woman waiting for the stones to land on her back and she just can hear the thud of stones, but they're just being dropped gently. And it's starting with the oldest, they all drop their stones. And then Jesus says this brilliant thing, he says, has anyone condemned you? And he says, no, no one. And then he says, what? Neither do I condemn you. He could have thrown a stone. He never sinned sexually at all. He could have thrown a stone, but he didn't. He says, I'll condemn you. If you've blown it and struggling with sexual stuff and you're doing stuff that, the, that God says is outside of the context, God does not condemn you. He doesn't say, that's fine, because he also says, go and now leave it. Leave that, turn from that. Do something about it. But he doesn't condemn. And I want you, before we go any further, to get that really clear. He doesn't condemn you. That's shocking, isn't it? Because it sounds like he doesn't care. But he does care. But condemnation isn't going to get it done. He's going to do it another way, through love and grace and through his death on the cross. And when that woman was standing there thinking, I'm going to die for my sin, he's thinking, no, you're not, because I am going to die for your sin. So everybody cares about who we have sex with. Everybody does. Everybody cares who people have sex with. Without exception, we all have a moral view on what types of sexual activity are appropriate and are right, and the sexual activities that are inappropriate and wrong. I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbour and say what from that list was appropriate or not, but I'm sure we'd all took the last one, wouldn't we? Or the second to last one as well. I don't know where you want to go up the list, but we would all have a view would all have a view. It's interesting, there's a social attitude survey that's taken every year. Here's three quotes from 2013. The latest one. This is everybody cares who you have sex with. Not just God, everybody does. In in 1983, 28% said it was almost or mostly wrong for a man and a woman to have sexual relationships outside of marriage. So 28% said no. Now that's just 12% said it's always or mostly wrong. And an all-time high of 65% see nothing wrong in such behaviour. But everybody's got a view. 16%, 12% have got a view about sex outside uh, marriage and relationships. But it's interesting, we're a bit mixed up. Because here's the next quote. Same survey, same people that were asked. We're not quite sure what we think. Yet, cheating on a partner is likely to be greeted with more disapproval than it was 30 years ago. 
Now, 68, 63% say it's always wrong for a married person to have sexual relationships with someone other than their partner. Slightly more. Interesting, slightly more than 1984, 58%. So what we're saying is, it's fine for you to have sex with whoever you want, but if you're in a relationship with me, I am not happy about that. I don't mind everybody having sex with whoever they want, but if they're in a relationship with me and they're having sex with someone else, I am really ticked off about that. I really care about that. That really matters to me. And just just to give you context, I won't comment on this. Everybody cares about who you have sex with. In 1987, 64% of the public surveyed said that a sexual relationship between two adults of the same sex was always wrong. 64% in 1987. Today, only 22% think that the same-sex relationships are always wrong. Well, nearly half say they're not. That has been a huge change, hasn't it? Our sexual ethics are changing. What we think is right and wrong is changing. So I watched the film, uh, The Imitation Games, Alan Turing, really sad story, a homosexual, uh, really bright, clever guy, homosexual, uh, involved in homosexual act with, with some guys, arrested... And he's chemically castrated. So they give him chemicals to kill his sex drive. In the end, he kills himself. Now, we, most of us now, would say that is really wrong, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we? I would. What? What a really brilliant guy, an amazing guy, and working through his sexuality and is, is, you know, chemically castrated. Now, that's not to make comment on whether it's right and wrong, because we're saying it's man and woman in, in, in a thing called marriage. But, but that view has changed, hasn't it? Now, please don't mishear me what I'm not saying. I'm not equating homosexuality to what I'm about to say next. It's a big, big new paragraph. But our views of paedophilia are really changed. So in Roman times, it was okay. Paedophilia was fine in Roman times. It's now the big social taboo. But I've read some stuff in the papers. I read that kind of paper that does that kind of stuff, The Guardian, and they say, actually, the probable drift is that is unlikely to be a sexual taboo 25 years from now. And you think, I can't believe that! But sexual ethics change. They're constantly changing. Our sexual ethics are always changing. Now, I, I, here's, here's this. You would expect God's, an unchangeable God, to have a timeless sexual ethic, wouldn't you? One man, one woman, in marriage. That's his timeless sexual ethic. And you'd expect society to have sexual ethics going back, Romans, Greeks, medieval, Victorian, British, kind of 85, whatever. The sexual ethics that we're involved in, you know, Western Europe, Africa, sexual ethics, very different. Now, the, the interesting thing is, we tend to think, don't we, that our sexual ethic is right. What, what society says right now about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate sexually, we think that's right. And what we tend to do is point the finger and say, God, you're out of step. Is that, not, is, that, is that not true? Please help me. I think that's true, isn't it? We tend to think, what, it, what I say now in 2015 in, in, the, in Western Europe, UK, that's what I think is appropriate. And anything that God says that's different from that is out of step. But actually, you roll it back and you think, well, when, when was the correct sexual ethic? Have we got it right now? You know, when's it, when are we going to get it right? And so it's interesting that we tend to point the finger from the kind of Western Europe and say, God, you're always wrong. 
because you don't agree with my sexual ethic, you don't agree with what I think is right and wrong. And also, you look at the rest of the, the, the rest of the nations, actually, our sexual ethic in Western Europe completely differs from Uganda. Now, I'm not suggesting that what they do in Uganda is what I would agree with, because I'm from Western Europe. But it does agree, doesn't it? Are we saying that white British sexual, or white American sexual ethic, is that is the pure sexual ethic, and that's how you should do it, and everybody else is wrong? That's a challenging thing. I'm just asking you a question, because if you say yes, then you're a racist, and there's a, you know, he's got a racist, no. The Jews thought he was, but that's another story. But actually, so we're saying sexual ethics, what people think is right and wrong about sex changes all the time. But God has never changed his mind right from the very beginning. It's a man and a woman married in commitment together. It's interesting, actually, that we, we, we tend to be very good at saying what's right and wrong. It might not be following my slide, but whatever. I think there's a Genesis 3, 4. Actually, the temptation at right at the beginning of the Bible story was they were tempted to, to, to say that God was bad. We talked about that last week, to say, God, I don't, I'm not happy with, what you're, with your view of what the world should be. I think you're, I think you're a negative mean God who's holding out on me. I'm going to declare declaration of independence and, and make my own view on what's right and wrong. This is what the Bible says. For God knows that when you eat from, from it, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The, the word knowing there is seeing and asserting good and evil. In other words, you're going to decide for yourselves what's right and wrong. And that's what we do with everything. We decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, and we decide for ourselves with, with, with our sexual ethic what's right and wrong. And then we say, because my sexual ethic doesn't agree with God's, I can't believe in God. Is that not what happens? I talk to people and say, I can't believe in a God who wouldn't let me sleep with my girlfriend. Because your sexual ethic, God, differs from mine. I can't believe in you. This is Richard Dawkins, or perhaps me asking Richard Dawkins. Is it really logical to declare that God does not exist as creator because he's got different sexual ethics from you? Because you, Richard Dawkins, should tell us what to do with our genitals, not God. That's really what he's saying, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying it's comfortable to say one man, one woman, and marriage only. Not in this society, not even maybe in this room. But actually, that is what God says. That's his sexual ethic. We find that hard. Andrew Wilson is a brilliant guy who did a series called Big Objections, and I've gone to read a lot of his stuff, and he says this about sex. So really, he says, what we're discussing about sex is we, we, we've got a different view of what it is. So it's a bit of a bad picture of him. <laughs> But you won't know he ever did it, will you? So it doesn't matter. This is what he says. Sexual ethics are based on very deep, and unprovable, controversial, in other words, everybody disagrees about it, convictions about what sex really is. How, how do we get our sexual ethics? I don't know where they come from. Some come from the media, some from society, some from families, some from church, some from politicians. Where do we get it from? But the bottom line is he's saying they're actually unprovable. What's right and wrong about this? 
when we make our own decisions. Okay, so let's ask the question, what is sex and who gets to do it? Okay, this is 21st century Western view. It's an enjoyable and intimate physical experience between consenting adults. That would be what most people... If you went out in the street and you asked people, what is sex? They'd probably think, man, you're weird. What, what, what is the matter with you? I'm doing a survey about sex. Yeah, what are you? Are you weird? But if you did get in a chat in the, in the pub and somebody said, well, what do you think sex is then, guys, girls? Most people would say it's an enjoyable and intimate physical experience between consenting adults. So who gets to use it? Well, consenting adults. Wouldn't that be that 21st century? Have I, have I got that right? That's pretty much where we are, isn't it? What about the traditional view? And I haven't chosen a picture of somebody from Africa for that, but I just thought it was a really nice picture. Although they would have a more traditional view. It's a union. This is a traditional view. It's a union between a man, an adult man and an adult woman already joined in lifelong commitment to each other, marriage, which produces physical enjoyment. You know, you, you are supposed to enjoy it. That's okay. In the right context. Marital cohesion. <laughs> Marital cohesion. Yeah, <laughs> Let's go to bed. <laughs> Sorry. Marital. That'd be great, wouldn't it? So who's dressing up as a ninja tonight? <laughs> no. <laughs> My kids are here. Enough. We'll cut that out of the podcast. No, I think it's funny. What you do, if you don't come, you just think, why is, that? Why is everyone laughing and there's a big space? <laughs> Marital cohesion. There is a sense where you are meant to bond. It's meant, you're meant, sex is meant to stick you together. It's an old song, isn't it, that says, every time you go away, you take a little piece of me with you. You're meant to stick, it's meant to stick together. In fact, Vicky sent me a video of a guy who was talking about kind of how men bond uh, with the first sexual partner. It was quite amusing, actually, because he said, I don't know if you've seen these nature programs about geese, when they, the little geese and they hatch out, yeah? Zach knows where I'm going. They hatch these little geese out, and the very first thing they see, they imprint on and think, it's my mother, yeah? You must have seen these programs, have you? And so they wear these Wellington boots, like red Wellington boots, and when the, when the geese hatch, they look out, red Wellington boots, red Wellington boots are my mother. Yeah, you've seen that? Men are the same. <laughs> the first sexual encounter, and I'm not talking about intercourse, I'm talking about broader sexual encounters, so whether that's an orgasm, or it's oral sex, or other kind of sex, first intimate sexual encounter of that nature, men bond, chemically, imprint upon the person. And the more sexual partners a man has, the less that bond is there. And also chemically, women find that the dopamine, the pleasure kind of chemical, the more sexual partners a woman has, the less uh, dopamine she releases, the less pleasure she gets out of it. Well, what's all that about? The men, this, that, you do the, do the science, it's not me, it's not the Bible, it's the science. The science is men, you're supposed to bond with the first one. 
And women, you're supposed to have the best pleasure with the one. That's just how it is. Marital cohesion is chemically true. And also children. Now, sometimes it's sad if you can't have kids. And there are lots of relationships, men and, uh, married relationships, where people can't have kids. But there's something about, uh, about that uh, sense of life coming. That life comes out of the right context. The abortion stats in our nation are shocking, aren't they? You know, I could say this about women's rights. We talked about we are feminists in this church, but we're not radical feminists. We talked about it last week. Radical feminism says, I can use abortion, man or a woman, as a form of contraception. That can't be right, can it? That can't be right. But life's got to come. In the right relationship, life's got to come. Therefore, the traditional view is sex is between a married man and woman. But actually, the Bible view, the Christian view, goes even further. So it's already it's a traditional view plus, as it were. It's an act of union between an adult man and an adult woman already joined in lifelong commitment to each other, which produces physical enjoyment, marital cohesion, children, and... Is there a spelling mistake? It's martial cohesion. You won't forget it now. Which is an image of Jesus and his church. There's something about that relationship that, that actually is so important that you know it's more than just chemicals. You know there's something more going on. That's why we care. That's why we all care about sex. Because we know there's something more going on. And I believe it's because God created us to have that connection, that unity, that images Jesus' unity with us. And we'll look at these a bit, if I, if I can remember what I put. Life-giving unity expresses life-giving. It's not death. It's life-giving unity, oneness, otherness, faithfulness, and surrender. So we all understand, we all care about what sex is, and then it's more than the exchange of, of warmth and touch, and this is where I move over here. It's more than the exchange of warmth and touch and bodily fluids. It's not just that. There's something more going on. Here's a couple of quotes. This is from uh, Radiohead. Tom York, I don't know if you've heard of him. He says this, not Christian, it's just his view. Sex is more than an act of pleasure. It's the ability to feel so close to a person, so connected, so comfortable that it's almost breathtaking to the point you can feel you can't take it. And at this moment, you're part of them. We kind of know, don't we? We know there's something deeper going on with sex. There's something more going on with sex. Everybody cares about sex. Here's, here's a quote from Ecclesiastes. God has made everything beautiful. That includes sex. And he set eternity in the hearts of, of men, but yet no one can fathom what God has done. There's something in us that knows that there's more than just, if I sleep around with that person, that person, that person, that person, it doesn't matter. There's something in us that thinks that's kind of destructive. There's something in us that says we should connect. So this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And they say, a bit like the wood in West, 21st century Western society, I have the right to do anything. I can do what I want. That's my sexual ethic, first century Greek city, Corinth, with actually a temple, with temple prostitutes and sexuality all over the place, just like us. Okay, we might not have temple prostitutes, but you can find a bar if you want. There's one just up the road called Fantasy. It's there, isn't it? Same culture. 
I have right to do everything with my, uh, can do anything. But Paul says, but the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality for the Lord. It's meant to be this connection with Jesus. And this imaging, this man and woman is meant to image this connection with Jesus. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin, says Paul. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As the scripture says, the two become one. And then he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to people who are not Christians, because elsewhere he says, what people do aren't Christians. That's not my problem. And it's not my problem. I mean, in the end, it's not my job to campaign about how, what people do in their beds. And I, I'm, I suspect if you come to this church, nobody greeted you, Julie didn't greet you on the door and say, uh, hello, welcome. Could I just ask who you're ha- you having sex with? Oh, sorry, that, sorry, no, you can't come. Yeah, oh, lovely, you can have a cookie. Who wants a cookie? Yeah, but it isn't about that. But for Christians, Paul says this, don't you know that your body is the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit in you, who you have from God? You're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. He's saying that actually, what you do with your body is where everything of you go, your, your, your spirit goes. So when you have sex within marriage, you're imaging this unity, this incredible love and unity between Jesus and the church. Think about this, nearly done. Sex in our culture is thought by many to be the highest good there is. So this is where the view of, I can do what I want, it's not just about rules. This is much deeper. Sex in our culture is thought by, to be, uh, by many to be the highest good there is, the most excellent thing to pursue. In our culture, sex equates to human identity and human flourishing. So this is the challenge, isn't it? If you are not having sex, if you're not having sex, uh, even, if you're, uh, even if you're at sixth form at, at school, people want to brag that they're having sex. Oh, yeah, no we have no idea, Joth. Yes, they want to brag that they're having sex because sex is what the cool kids do. Sex is what you do if, you're, if you've really reached the peak of human flourishing. If you're really, really flourishing, if your life is in the, in the best possible place, you're having lots of sex. Lord Jesus. And that's why I said sixth form, because I know once you get kids and everything, it's all a bit more crazy. So in our culture, ability to have sex with someone you want is seen as a right that nobody can challenge. So I know that people give up stuff. So, you know, I think... Health is the most important thing. So people give up food, they say, I'm going to be on a diet, they spend their time exercising, they spend their money, they make sacrifices because they think the highest human good is to be healthy. Do you understand that? We all give up stuff for the highest human good. So what happens in our society is the highest human good is seen as having sex. So you're going to tell me I've got to be single? Whoa, no, 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 no. It's all right for you because you're married, but actually, what if you are saying, you're saying you can't have sex? Yeah, that's exactly what, what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, you can't have sex. He said, whoa, whoa, well, how am I going to be a fully developed human being? I'm 28, 29, 30, I'm not married. How am I going to be a fully developed human being because I'm not going to have sex? I'm just going to be a, a picture of who I'm supposed to be. And that's what society says, isn't it? Do you agree with me? It's almost like, whoa, singleness. Oh, what, well, I'm sexually attracted to the same sex. What are you saying? I can't, I can't express that, but that's who I am. That's my identity. You're, you're stopping me being myself. That's because sex has become this kind of God thing. Let's, let, that's um, 
Amnesty International, which I'm very much in favour of, but I thought it was a good image. Okay. Sex in our culture is thought by many to the highest good there is. That's what I said. The most excellent thing to pursue creates to our identity and flourishing. So sex in our culture is idolised. It's pursued, delighted in, sacrificed for, and without which life is incomplete. That's kind of a God, isn't it? This is what Andrew Wilson says about this. a long quote with many clauses. Bear with me. So when our culture hears, God made humans to have sex in one context only, that is in the marriage between one man and one woman, then if you're a single person or a gay or a lesbian person, what you hear is not only sex is constrained for this setting, but you're saying, I can never be a full human being. Because you are denied the very thing that our culture says you must have to flourish as a human being. So that's what we're into. It's big stuff. So the, let's, let's land this down then. Let's land this down. I think there's, I don't know how many more there is, but let's, let's get it down. So I'm going to give you four little things that sex in marriage uh, images. Sex in marriage is an image of Jesus and his church and expresses life-giving. Life-giving. Why does, why, does the, why does marriage need to be life-giving? Think about Jesus and the church. Our relationship, if you're a Christian, your relationship with Jesus is life-giving. God is a life-giving God. His relationships are life-giving. They're overflowing creation. And, and God in Christ gives life to us. He says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. This is ultimate human flourishing. That you may know the true God and Jesus who you sent. Ultimate human flourishing. Not having the most sex, but saying, I find my life in you, God. But the opposite of that is, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is what casual sex does to people. It steals, kills marriages, destroys families. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And it means relationship with him. So it's got to be life-giving. And that's why sex in marriage is an image of Jesus in his church and expresses oneness and unity. Again, from John 17, Jesus' prayer. Father, just as you and me, I'm sorry if it sounds sexual, but it kind of is. Spiritually, an image of Father, just as you and me and I'm in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you've sent us. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are in one. I in them and you and me. There's something amazingly spiritual about when a man and wife have sex together that images that incredible closeness and unity. What God has joined together, let nobody break. And it's not that, that our relationship with Jesus is sex. Please don't get me wrong. You think, well, oh, this, you know, it's a pagan thing. There's plenty of pagan religions where they worship their deity by having sex in the temple. We're not saying that, but we're saying there's an intimacy and a closeness and a oneness and a belonging that man and wife sex faithfully has that is like Christ's love for us. Jesus wants to experience the truest and deepest sense of belonging and oneness with them. Our society wants to belong. He doesn't want to be uh, joined and then ripped and joined and then ripped. And I've seen it close hand just where I'm living and it's tragic. 
It's faithfulness. Who can separate us from the love of God? This is, this is God's faithfulness to us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life or anything in all creation will be a separate from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Aren't you looking for somebody who's going to love you unconditionally and never let you down? Jesus, Paul said, it's Jesus, it's him. I like this, interestingly. We're designed for faithfulness. Not only have I said about human imprinting and chemicals, but psychologists describe the relationship breakup due to infidelity as the emotional equivalent of post-dramatic stress disorder. In other words, like, you know, when you come back, come back from Afghanistan and you've been in the combat zone and you're so, it impacts you, the, the fear of death and the, the trauma of those moments. You feel I'm in that moment and you can't sleep and it affects you psychologically. Psychologists say that's what happens when you're in a relationship and they leave you. Post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like, whoa. We know it's more than just, let's just hang together for a season, see where it goes. We know that. And then lastly, well, I think it's lastly, no, last but one. Sex in marriage is an image of Jesus and his church and expresses otherness and surrender. Otherness means it's not about me. It's, it's not about me, sorry, it's about somebody else. Fifty Shades of Grace says it's about me and my pleasure and you do what I want to give me my pleasure. And what people say is, you know what you need is you need more of that kind of taking. More of that, what am I going to get from it to make my sex satisfying? But the Bible says, no, you give it away and that's what's satisfying. You give yourself away and that's what's satisfying. And that's what Jesus did. We mentioned this passage last week. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her on the cross. In, this, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one hated their own body, but they feed and care for it. There's an otherness, just as Christ does for us. So why does God care about who we sleep with? He cares about who we sleep with because there's a lot more going on than just chemicals and warmth and intimacy. There's something about connection and unity and love and giving ourselves away that is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. And then that's why when marriage, when it's working well, is great. But it also means if you're single uh, or you're, you're struggling with a sexual identity or you're struggling with an issue, it means that ultimate, ultimate happiness is found in that big relationship between Jesus and his church. It's not found in the image. It's not found in the picture. It's not found in the facsimile. It's not found in the, the, the small view of it. It's found in the big view of how great God is. Now you say, well, that's okay for you, Had, because you're married. But Jesus wasn't married. Was he fully human? Did he flourish like nobody else? Yes. I don't know whether Paul's married. We don't know that St. whether St. Paul was married or not. But he's full of human flourishing. He said, for me to live is sex, to die is gain. No, for me to live is Christ. That's where I find my ultimate human fulfillment. And I love it because actually that, that what Jesus is saying is, is a wedding on the cross. And I've talked about this before and I love the imagery. Jesus is dying on the cross and it's the most horrible thing. You know, we're saying let's get suited and booted and look good. But Jesus takes all our ugliness and all our brokenness and all that stuff that we've hid inside and he puts it on the outside in his broken body. 
And he says, all that I am, I give to you. All my wholeness and fullness and human flourishing, all my love and faithfulness and otherness, I give that to you. It pours out from him. And we give him all our drawn-in, narrow, grasping, selfishness. For God so loved the world, I've got here in the corner, that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him may not perish, but have life. Why does God care who we sleep with? Not because he's trying to close you in and box you in and make sure you don't have fun. He's saying, I want you to have sex in this context only because I want you not to look down, but to look up to his beautiful love for us. Why don't you stand with me? I'm not going to ask you to come forward, right? Those who are struggling with pornography, form a small queue here. Those of you of sexual infidelity... Those of you who've got guilt from the past, line up down the side. No, we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is just take a moment. And I want to encourage you to do this properly. We're going to take a moment to realign ourselves. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.